This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thousands of students in Denver public schools were homeless at some point during the last school year. And a company just came into the district to help families get essentials like bedding or winter jackets. Anna Tyson leads the Office for Homeless Families at DPS. She's on the phone. Also with us, Jamie Reif, who's going to explain how Coloradans are helping their neighbors through text messages. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Anna, you've been working with homeless students in Denver for several years. And I wonder what's changed over that time in terms of what they need or how long students end up homeless. Yeah, that's a great question, Ryan. So I've been with the district in our program for approximately 14 years now, and I've really just seen the landscape of family homelessness change over the years. Um, families are, are waiting longer and longer to get into housing. Our affordable housing wait lists are longer than they ever have been before. And so the duration that our students are spending in insecure housing situations has definitely lengthened. Um, and families are really having to make really hard choices um, now more than ever between emergency medical bills or school supplies, school needs for their students. So this is another sign of the affordable housing crunch that uh, there's instability longer in their lives. And so what kinds of situations are they in? Are they living in shelters? Are they couch surfing? What do you, what do you know those situations yeah. to be? So our students are staying in a variety of, of situations. Um, we do have families that are residing in emergency shelters or um, time-sensitive transitional housing programs. We also have families who are staying in motels, um, doubled up with friends or relatives. And then a small populations of our students are actually unsheltered. And so these are families that, upon coming in contact with our program, are staying in cars or RVs or parks. And we really really work to try and get them into safe um, settings. So I know you use federal money to get students things that will help them at school. Uh, But what other kinds of things do they need that you're not able to provide with the federal dollars? Yeah, so our program is tied specifically to school. And so um, Perposity really helps us take a whole family approach. And, and this so, is this is the new approach, Perposity, yeah. by the way, which is a mashup of purpose and generosity. We'll talk about how it works in a bit. But yeah, what, what sorts of things does this get you access to for kids? Yeah, so really non-school related items that um, are basic needs that we know our families need. So bedding, um, warm blankets, um, possibly space heaters. Um, If there's a a baby in the family, this can help us link that newborn with much-needed baby supplies, such as a bassinet and clothing. So it's really amazing. And again, these are items the federal money doesn't pay for and that you're hoping the community can. And that's where Jamie's group comes in. Again, it's called Purposity, Purpose and Generosity. And uh, I understand you used to do exactly the kind of work that Anna does in schools near Atlanta. How did that lead you to start Proposity? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was in Metro Atlanta doing the same exact thing, a homeless education um, coordinator for my district. And what I found, Ryan, is that there are so many people that wanted to help when I started speaking on the issue of child and youth homelessness, but I didn't have an action step for them. And so what we were able to do is actually wireframe out a technology that connects people in need with people that can help locally all right through a text message. Okay. Wireframe. 
Mm, that, yeah. That's some IT lingo there. But basically, <laughs> you created a way for people to give more directly. How does it work? What do you ask people to do? Yeah. So all we ask is that users sign up to receive one text message a week. And they get that text message. It has a link to a story in it. And it's an actual story of an individual in your local community, students like Anna's, that need something simple. And you read this story. And if you want to help, you just click purchase now. It takes you to Amazon. And you actually check out through your own Amazon account, and it's set up to ship to the nonprofit that's requesting that item. Which might be Denver Public Schools, Mm -hmm. but you're also connected in Denver to Volunteers of America to help veterans, Mercy Housing for low-income seniors. Uh, I signed up, and I just this morning got an alert for a story titled, Let Him Rest His Head. Uh, This teen finally has a bed of his own, after he and his family experienced homelessness, they are celebrating this holiday season in a home of their own, but they need household essentials. And so this is uh, a $20 request for a pillow. Yeah, exactly. So it's super low barrier to giving. Number one, it comes right to your cell phone once a week. And number two, our average item is about $30. So most people have that to spare. And it's a tangible step that you can take locally to make a difference. And so that goes to the service provider, um, which then passes it along to the family. That's how I'm guaranteed that what I buy through Amazon is going to end up in the hands of, of whoever needs it. Huh? Yeah, exactly. So it's all set up to ship to the nonprofit. And you can watch it be delivered through your your own Amazon account, just like you would if you ordered the item to show up to your own house. Okay. Uh, Proposity has its biggest group of donors signed up in Atlanta, where mm-hmm. you came from. Um, what I think is really interesting is that you found a lot of your donors are young, under 35. Uh, how are you going to keep getting new donors to sign up and give you their phone numbers after this initial <laughs> Yeah, push. that's a great question. So it is really exciting that we've been able to engage a much younger demographic of users in this idea of philanthropy. So about a third of our users are between the ages of 25 and 34 nationally, but they actually end up meeting about 40% of the needs, which is encouraging. And we have more people on the platform than we have needs. So we're working now through kind of being able to grow the number of needs and number of nonprofits that we have in local communities to assure that we're engaging all of them. Anna, do you think there's going to be any shortage of need or is that something that DPS will continue to come up with uh, needs to be met? Unfortunately, there there is not a shortage of needs. Um, we will continue to work. We right now are serving a little over 1,400 students district-wide, and last year we identified 2,013 students throughout that school year. And so the need is great, and we are just so thankful to our community for really rallying around our students and helping ensure that they can be successful in their education. Is it that you're hearing from teachers, for instance, about the need? Like, do they come to you and say, gosh, you know, my my student mentioned that he or she has a, a new place to live, but they need a mattress or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And we work very closely with our families. And so many of our families will call my liaisons to share the great news. And this particular student, they've um, experienced homelessness for over 18 months. And when we reached out to them to ask what they were needing, their simple request was really just bedding and a pillow. And so we're just really excited uh, to meet this need for that family. We have a few screenshots of the messages that you've sent out on behalf of DPS at CPR.org so people can see what this looks like. You know, we talked to an expert in charitable giving by millennials who said that for as globally connected as that generation is, they really like to have a local 
specific impact. And it seems that Proposity is able to do that and connect it really to story. I mean, part of this is the storytelling of the need, I guess. Yeah, I think that's actually the biggest reason that people are so drawn to this is that it is personalized and it's transparent one-to-one giving. Like, you know exactly who you're helping, you know their story, and it's super authentic. And it has a specific call to action that's doable for most millennials. I wonder, Anna, if you found that uh, Proposity is a way that public schools can find younger donors, maybe donors who don't have kids in the school, but want to support students who live nearby. You know, is this a, a way to engage people who aren't normally that intimately engaged with DPS? Yeah, definitely. And I think just with my, you know, social group, folks just really want to give, but they don't really know how to do it. And this is such a more personable approach than contributing to a local school drive. Um, You really have the biggest impact um, through this platform. Yeah, and you're given an update on when the need is met. That happened as well to me. Uh, just briefly, Jamie, do you take any portion of the donations for Perposity to operate? How do you stay in business here? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've looked at a couple of different revenue models, but the one that we've landed on is to not charge either the users or the nonprofits. So instead, we form partnerships in local communities with sponsors who come in and say, you know, we'd really like to be part of this, and they help us kind of keep the lights on and keep the platform rolling in their communities. Okay, so uh, my donation when I buy that pillow, mm-hmm. that is purely... It's 100% goes to the need. And actually, all of your money goes right through Amazon. Okay. Uh, I guess to wrap up, Anna Tyson, do do you see that the affordable housing crunch and, and again, its connection to DPS is going to get better in the next few years? Or do you think that uh, it's headed in the wrong direction? What do you foresee? We're really hopeful. I know there's several bonds and initiatives happening, and the city's really trying to address it head on. Um, Unfortunately, that's a ways out for our families who are currently experiencing homelessness. And so right now we are seeing families leaving this district, and it's really unfortunate because we really want to hang on to our kids. Um, And if it's because of the lack of affordable housing, that's very unfortunate for our families. This is the displacement we so often hear about. Thanks to both of you for being with yeah, us. Thank, thank you. you. I heard from Jamie Reif, who co-founded Perposity, a company that just launched in Colorado to help nonprofits provide essentials like coats and bedding to kids, as well as veterans and the elderly. And we also heard from Anna Tyson of Denver Public Schools. This is part of our coverage of startups in Colorado. We call it The Disruptors. And there are more stories about interesting companies and entrepreneurs at CPR.org. It can be really scary. You're driving and all of a sudden you can't see anything because the sun's in your eyes. The glare has gotten so bad the past few mornings that they have at times closed I-70 East in the foothills near Denver. And there was a bad accident over the weekend because of glare. CDOT just sent out some tips, and I learned a few things from them, so I thought we'd pass them along. Patrick Chavez manages I-70 through the mountains. And hi, Patrick. Good morning. This is a problem all over the state, but why is it so bad at this section, roughly between Idaho Springs and Denver this time of year? Well, there's one section that we uh, have in particular. It's uh, Floyd Hill. So 
that is, as eastbound travelers are driving on that section and they're uh, sending Floyd Hill uh, during a certain periods of the winter, so from November th- through January, the sun is just right in the perfect alignment. So as they begin to drive up the hill, they're driving directly into the sunshine, and, and uh, so it, it causes a lot of blinding for the drivers. And this is particularly a problem in the morning in winter, as you say. Yes. Uh, so we normally see it uh, between 7 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. And uh, really the, the the most severe times is about 7.30 to 8 o'clock. CDOT is going so far as to recommend that people avoid that eastbound stretch of highway descending into Denver between 7 and 8.30. Is that a reasonable request to make of rush hour travelers? Uh, we try to think so. We, we often see that in, uh, in other areas where uh, we try to give the traveling public as much notice as possible that, of impacts to their travel, and especially safety impacts. So uh, we try to give it uh, by giving them this, this type of information. We hope that they can either reschedule their time or be prepared for when they come uh, up onto the this, items like this, like the sun glare. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that your agency can do to the highway itself to n- minimize the glare? Uh, not Unless, short of putting uh, a sunshade or something up there at the uh, Floyd Hill, I think there's not much we can do. Uh, okay. We do try to uh, put aggressive messaging up on the VMS electronic boards uh, on I-70, warning drivers that they're heading into uh, that type of hazard. Um, and, and the biggest problem or the uh, biggest thing that we see is uh, being prepared to respond if something does happen on on Floyd Hill. Yeah, so to these tips and these work really uh, all over the state if you face these sun glares. Yeah. Uh, one is make sure your windshield is clean because that layer of dirt can really add to the blindness, huh? Yeah. The, by having a dirty windshield, it makes it much more difficult to see through that windshield when the sun is, is reflecting on it. And this is true both inside and out because the inside of the windshield can get dirty too. Uh, you suggest wearing sunglasses to provide shading. And I, I found this useful. Don't slam on the brakes when the sun gets in your eyes. Christ, that's a very natural reaction, right? To want to immediately stop if you can't see something. Why is that a bad idea? Well, in in this case, uh, you're on a highway with uh, other vehicles traveling at highway speed. So if you slam on your brakes, uh, the people behind you are experiencing the same uh, sensation where they cannot see anything. So if someone is suddenly stopped in the middle of the highway, uh, and oftentimes we'll have vehicles that will rear in that vehicle. And that's what happened on Saturday is that we had uh, several vehicles that uh, slammed into the back of other vehicles and and caused the accident. So letting the foot off the accelerator and slowing down more gradually. Uh, What about window tinting? So like I have my side windows tinted. Can you tint the windshield in Colorado? You can tint the top four inches of the windshield. In this case, that really doesn't help uh, as you're traveling up Floyd Hill, you're still traveling directly into the sunlight. And so even having the top four inches can be, uh, will not potentially be enough to uh, shade you from the sun. Patrick, very briefly before we go, I was surprised to learn that you had temporarily closed I-70 eastbound in this portion because of glare. Does that happen often that you just shut down a roadway because the, the glare is so bad? And do you provide alternate routes? And we're trying to take a more proactive measure uh, to to uh, mitigate this hazard. So we uh, have CDOT and CSP uh, units that will be in the area, make an assessment of the conditions so that they can uh, make that decision if we need to close the highway or not. Yeah. Um, 
we do provide a alternate route, so we will detour people off at the bottom of Floyd Hill onto uh, six, Highway 6 and 40, so people are, are, drivers are able to uh, continue driving to their destination. The CSP, the Colorado State Patrol. In other words, you have uh, the patrol looking at the sun and seeing if it's really bad, then making a decision for traffic. Thanks so much for being with us. That's yeah. Patrick Chavez. He's CDOT's I-70 Mountain Operations Manager, joining us from his office in Golden. And you can find the agency's tip for dealing with sun glare at CPR.org. We hear your reactions to our show in loud and clear. Recently, we visited a needle exchange in Denver where injection drug users can drop off dirty syringes and pick up clean ones. They also get information on how to keep their veins healthy and avoid overdosing. On Twitter, user at BiblioRock says, Thank you for the compassionate coverage of the Harm Reduction Action Center and of the opioid epidemic. As we reported, the center hopes to do even more, becoming a place where drug users can inject with medical supervision. But that will require permission from the city and the state. Well, late last week, Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman came out in favor of a Denver safe injection site. The Republican, who is running for governor, says anecdotes and data show it's needed. Quote, the data is dead bodies washing up on Cherry Creek. I think it's people found with needles in their arms on Colfax. I think it's dead children being buried by parents. End quote. The other day, I spoke with Vietnam veteran Stan Parker of Colorado Springs. He's the subject of a new book about the Tet Offensive, a major turning point in the war. Author Doug Stanton joined me as well. Stanton wrote vividly about the horrors of war. Here's a line which I read during the interview, and I'll give you a moment if you'd rather not hear a graphic description. Stan looks up. It's begun to rain. He tastes blood. It's raining men exploded men. I then asked Stanton what he thinks a reader gets from that kind of description. Well, longtime CPR listener Tom Harris of Indian Hills called us up afterwards, first off to say he's not been a big fan of the show. He went on to say that my question about the graphic nature of the book rubbed him the wrong way. And as the show went on and he described some of the scenes, I recognize that you weren't being insulting at all. I think that actually book an experience. You may have really read it, and it really affected you. That's what I got just from the disembodied voice over the radio. I wanted to tell you, I've been listening, like I said, for 12 years, and tonight, after one question, you changed the listener's mind totally just by the questions and the tone of your voice, and made me look at it in the mirror very closely of why I came up with my opinions in the first place. Maybe that's what journalists do, is make us look at ourselves. But in any case, You've got a convert. Tom, I appreciate that. I had read the book. It's very important to me. And indeed, I was struck by Stanton's writing and by Parker Steele. What strikes you about our show? Share your feedback and story ideas at CPR.org slash connect. Not many people have a mountain named after them. But that honor may be bestowed upon two mountaineers who died on a peak in China. Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff lost their lives 11 years ago this month. A bill to name two Colorado peaks after them passed unanimously in the U.S. House. Now it awaits a vote in the Senate. 
Arlene Burns was their friend and led a search for the pair in 2006. That search required some incredible round-the-clock detective work. And hi, Arlene. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for being with us. Tell us about these two mountaineers. You really considered them philanthropists as well, I understand. Yes, well, they were good friends. Um, I met Charlie in the mid-90s, and uh, we were both uh, very involved with Mountain Film in Telluride, the mountaineering slash environmental film festival that happens in late May every year. And Charlie and Chris were both um, incredibly dedicated to wilderness and the spirit of wilderness in all ways. And uh, Chris was involved, especially with uh, reading and literacy all over the world. Uh, She was involved with a organization called Room to Read. And Charlie was mainly focused on access issues for climbers. And he actually built climbing walls in Telluride, Norwood and Ridgeway, which was in the community where they lived. In 2006, when Fowler and Boscoff failed to return from a climbing trip, you led a search for them from afar uh, in Telluride, I understand. How did you manage to locate your friends who disappeared in the remote mountains of China or Tibet? I mean, at that point, you really didn't know. Um, How do you begin to do that from afar? Well, it was an interesting effort, and it all started out when um, one of our dear mutual friends, uh, Diva Chihonis, who owns a bookstore there in Telluride, was, uh, it was her birthday, and we were expecting both of them to be back. And then we realized, hey, you know, they haven't returned yet. So as we started uh, prying and called her company, it turns out they were three weeks late and they had missed their international flight, and no one had heard from them. And it really was, uh, we started something called a Fowler-Boskoff Search Committee that were it was really five dedicated friends on the ground in Telluride. And we realized, you know, first we wanted to hand off information, and we realized there was no one to hand it to. So we became the search engine, and originally we were looking for them in an area the size of California. Wow. So uh, it was, uh, we had a group on the ground. We were working with the Chinese uh, police. We were working with the embassy. We were working with Tibetans and um, trying to find, uh, in the end, what was really the most helpful is trying to find where they might have left their luggage before they went into the mountains, assuming they wouldn't have taken everything they owned with them. And that finally became the key Um, partially probably because we offered a reward for information. Um, And then we found the driver who had dropped them off, and we found monks in a monastery in a very remote region um, uh, that had last seen them. And we think these monks were the last people to have seen them alive. Okay, so that helps you triangulate the area. It surprises me how long they had been missing before, you know, someone sort of sent up a warning flag? Well, for all of us who travel a lot, and I'm in the same category, um, it often happens, when, especially when we're off on Himalayan expeditions that last for six weeks or two months and are often extended on one or the other end. Um, And this was the case. uh, Christine had been leading a, a climb in the Himalayas, a commercial climb, and after the climb, she and Charlie were were doing what they loved to do, which was climb a, um, a unclimbed peak and uh, in a remote area. And it was one that Charlie had had his eyes on for many years. So um, it's it's funny because you know if you have a 
if you have the wife waiting back home or the husband waiting back home, you know, you know exactly. But with us as friends, you know, it's like, shouldn't they be home by now? And it was really this birthday celebration that sort of triggered us going, wow, they are a little bit late. Yeah. But um, it's a bit the nature of, of the beast, so to speak. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff. Uh, it is quite possible that two peaks in Colorado will be named for them. They died 11 years ago this month on a peak in China. And a bill to indeed name some peaks in Colorado after them has passed the U.S. House unanimously and now awaits approval in the Senate. So eventually they were found. And what what killed them? Well, it was most likely um, a dramatic event, either a Serac collapsing, which is this ice feature on the very top of the mountain that came down, or an avalanche, or that might have triggered the other. And we did find Charlie on Christmas Day, and, um, and in finding Charlie, we knew that Chris was not alive, but uh, the weather, that was full winter in the mountains at that point, so the, the search for Chris was postponed Till the spring. But at that point, we knew we were not looking for people that were injured and needed help, which yeah. originally in the search, we had no idea if they were injured, if they'd been kidnapped even. We wondered, you know, there was all kinds of speculation. But it really was a miracle that, that we were able to find them at 17,000 feet. Um, Charlie's legs were sticking out uh, out of the snow. So it's a needle in a haystack big time. Do you think we started looking in an area the size of California? Well, you and other friends and family have memorialized Fowler and Boscoff over the past 11 years, uh, for one thing, by toasting them each year during the Mountain Film Festival that you talked about them being very involved in, and by giving out an award in their names for Best Climbing Film. Uh, This idea of naming peaks for them, I'll say that these are two neighboring peaks on the border of San Miguel and Dolores counties in southwest Colorado, just over 13,000 feet high, and they're currently unnamed. So uh, it's not that they were carrying a name before this. How did, how did this idea come to you? Well, one of the members of our Fowler-Boskoff search committee, who was a, a very good friend of Charlie's and a fellow climber, had been often in the mountains with him. It was really his initiation, um, and this was an area that Charlie loved to go in and explore. These were peaks that he had climbed before in the decades that he had been in this area, which was just really on the neighborhood of Telluride and Norwood. And um, and Steve did some research in the USGS naming, because there were unnamed peaks there, oh. and um, was able to kind of go through the process, and when it became on a federal level, that could really include Christine Boscoff as well. So it's it, these are peaks that are 13,000-foot peaks. You can actually see them from several places around. And um, it just seemed like not only a great way to honor Charlie and Chris, but also to honor the peaks, because these were really uh, among the best of several generations of alpinists and mountaineers. And uh, not only were they incredibly accomplished climbers, but they were role models as humans for so many people all over. So this uh, this is really an exciting 
thing for us. And it's also a miracle that anything can go through Congress and pass unanimously. So <laughs> it's lovely that they can be honored like this as well. I hear your inherent cynicism there. Uh, and as we said, this awaits Senate approval. I imagine that there'll be something of a celebration maybe in Telluride or Norwood when, when this finally passes Congress. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. Absolutely. Mountaineers Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff died 11 years ago, climbing a peak on the border of China and Tibet. And a measure to name two Colorado peaks in their honor awaits a Senate vote. As I said, their friend Arlene Burns joined us by phone from Mosier, Oregon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There were some fascinating Coloradans who died in 2017 that we didn't get to tell you about. So we're going to do that between now and the end of the year. Today, Robert Bishop. He may be the most prolific Colorado photographer you've never heard of. For decades, he shot and sold postcards of ski areas and resort towns on the western slope, like Aspen and Durango. Bishop died in September in Grand Junction at age 96. You can still find his postcards for sale. Mark Johnston is a photo historian, and he co-directed a short film about Robert Bishop called Wish You Were Here. And Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. How did you find out about Robert Bishop? Well, I actually lived in Colorado in the early 70s. I lived for six years in Colorado Springs. Um, about that same time, I also became very involved in photography um, and familiar with a lot of photographers from across the country and had this long-standing fascination with postcards. I went off to Los Angeles for 30 years. And when I decided to uh, leave the fast pace of L.A. um, and move back into the West in a slower environment, one of the things I thought about doing was seeing if Bob Bishop was still alive. I didn't even know. So I tracked him down in Grand Junction in 2011 and began traveling down to visit him, look at his work, and talk to him and try to get an exhibition and book off the ground. And this is a a Um, name uh, you know if you are into postcards, especially of uh, settings in the West. I'm sure there were a lot of postcard photographers in the 50s, 60s, 70s. What stood out about Bishop's work? Well, there's several things about Bishop that make him unique. One was, um, first and foremost, he he made absolutely spectacular views because he was essentially living in the landscape um, much of the time. Um, he loved it so much that he he went camping a lot. He went. It was a great joy to him to simply drive all over the state, um, and he had a remarkable eye. He had a very unusual upbringing. Uh, with photography, which he carried forward and then um, turned into his own career. And whereas most postcard photographers labored um, for somebody else, Bishop was his own photographer and his own publisher, and he selected his own printer for his cards, and he distributed his cards himself. So he really was a one-man band, which made him uh, stand out. And when you would pick up postcards over and over and over and admire them, 
Inevitably, I would flip it over to see who took the photograph, and it was often one of his. Huh. We have images of Bob Bishop's postcards at CPR.org. I think he had some contracts, exclusive contracts with some ski areas. Uh, what were his favorite subjects? He did have an exclusive on most of the uh, Western Slope ski resorts for quite a time. Um, and But he photographed at all times a year, and he photographed many towns that weren't ski resorts um, for the tourists coming through. He knew that he was photographing cards um, that were being sold to tourists. They were being sold as um, mementos. I was here. It was cheaper than a phone call, and <laughs> it didn't take as much time as a letter. And postcards were sort of the Instagrams of the 50s and 60s. This is a spectacular view. Bob and Mary are doing fine. The kids are loving it. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. I mentioned that you co-directed a short documentary about Bob Bishop called Wish You Were Here. And let's listen to Bishop's voice. To make money, I had to photograph heavily visited areas. Water and red were two factors that increased the sales of a card. And maroon bells, that was a number one tourist attraction. So it was the biggest selling postcard. Water and red. That's so interesting. So if the postcard, I guess, had the color red in it and some imagery of water, it would sell better. Absolutely. It would stand off with the other cards stacked on the uh, stand by the cash register. You made reference to his, his earlier days. He was born in Iowa, started taking photos when he was a teenager. And I, I love this detail. His grandmother lived across the street and she had a dark room for him. She did. But the other thing that was highly unusual about him at the ages of 13 and 14 is his father sent him off uh, on a couple of trips with um, Park, Hill, Park Hill Tours Travel Camp for Boys. And they essentially went on two, three-week camping trips um, across the northwest U.S., Colorado, and Canada – and at the age of 15, during one of those trips, Bishop was already so good with a camera that they gave him a press pass for one day to the Calgary Stampede. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he photographed a little bit of rodeo. And he really had an ability to photograph anything. <clears throat> um, he photographed, uh, in a, as I said, in a lot of the towns in, in Colorado, but he also photographed in Utah and the Four Corners areas, too. His work was not unknown to photographers, um, although he didn't participate in a lot of fine art exhibitions. Uh, he rubbed elbows a number of times with very famous photographers and historians in the field. Right. Didn't, in didn't 19... he take... Yeah, he, he took workshops with like Ansel Adams, didn't he? He did. He did. In the late 40s, um, when... Bishop got out of uh, the Navy. He took some classes at Stanford. He had been stationed at Moffett Field in Northern California. He took some fine art classes at Stanford and also took workshops uh, with Ansel Adams in Yosemite. Wow. Again, see these images that Bob Bishop made at CPR.org. Uh, I'm going to reveal a little something about myself, which is that I 
send postcards as a hobby, uh, you can find like great blank ones at antique stores. Bookstores often have cool new postcards. Am I alone, Mark? Do do people still send postcards? They do. Um, it's more of a matter of a love of the card more than anything else. Um, a friend of mine and I, he's also a photographer named Marshall Mayer, actually started a website uh, five or six years ago called Art Goes Postal. And <laughs> okay. it, we, because we love postcards so much, we had to put some limitations on it. And we limited it to artists sending postcards to other artists. Um, and you can go to the website and look at some of those funny nudes and landscapes that attract you in the uh, antique stores. And uh, as you have uh, said in the documentary, and as we said, uh, Bob Bishop's postcards still still available. No? They are. Um, he has a website that his daughter runs, uh, robertcbishop.com. Um, they're also available at Carl's Pharmacy in Aspen. Mark Johnston is a documentary filmmaker and photo historian. We remembered Bob Bishop, who died in September at age 96. Some of his postcards are at CPR.org. When you touch something, say a steering wheel, little electrical impulses send a message to your brain about what you're feeling. Well, guess what? Bacteria can do the same thing. In Boulder, scientists have discovered that bacteria have a sense of touch and their findings could help fight disease. Joel Kralge is an assistant professor of biology at CU who leads this research. We spoke back in August and Joel, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. Let's start with the big picture here. So your study deals specifically with two types of bacteria. I understand E. coli and salmonella which cause food poisoning, of course. Uh, what do your findings mean to, you know, the average eater concerned about those pathogens in terms of fighting them off? Right. So our immune system is actually really good at dealing with threats. But bacteria, it turns out, have a lot of systems for uh, both getting into our gut and then understanding that they are on those cells. What we showed is is exactly like you said, that bacteria have this sense of touch. They can sense the environment around them. And then we believe that they're doing that to change their lifestyle. So if they are swimming around inside your gut, Uh then they know where they are and maybe they want to start infecting and give you food poisoning. So you mentioned cells. That is to say the, the cells in my body, essentially bacteria are able to sense what those cells might be and... What, attach or attack? Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. So a bacteria, like a salmonella, really wants to be inside your gut cell. That's uh, where it can proliferate and grow. So it can um, have a lot of babies and then make you very sick. So they have a desire to get into that cell. And so they've evolved a lot of mechanisms to learn that they are close to your gut and that they should start infecting at that point. And going under the microscope now, in in general terms, what you discovered is that bacteria have electrical activity going on inside them, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So for 50 years or so, people have known that electrical impulses control our brain. So every neuron in our brain communicates with these little electrical impulses that uh, can go at about a thousand times a second. 
And it's those electrical impulses that give rise to every thought and emotion and delicious food. Um, and so what we found is that bacteria actually have these little electrical impulses as well. So inside of a bacteria, they have uh, changing electrical fields, um, which we had assumed was conserved to this really beautiful evolved organism of our brain. Um, but really, bacteria seem to have been doing this for billions of years. Is it wrong that this makes me respect bacteria a bit more? I I, I I might even feel for them a little bit because it seems that they're sentient. Is that what you're saying? I don't know if we would say that we are they're sentient. So we okay. know that they have electrical impulses. Um, going from a bacteria dreaming to you know is is a big step. <laughs> okay. But uh, you should definitely respect them more. Uh, one of the things that I have come to appreciate in studying bacteria is that they're not just these little tiny organisms, they're really alive and they're trying to survive and they are really good at adapting to whatever environment they happen to be in. And so, yeah, you should definitely have respect for them. How the heck did you find out that this was the case, that these electrical impulses you associated with animal brains, uh, that something similar was going on with these bacteria, again, specifically Salmonella and uh, E. coli? So actually, it was a whole lot of luck. So at the beginning of the project, when I was in my postdoc lab at, uh, in the lab of Adam Cohen at Harvard, uh, we were we wanted to be neuroscientists, actually. And so we were looking for ways to measure voltage, these electrical impulses inside of neurons. And again, just through random chance, I happened to be doing some initial trial experiments in bacteria, since they're really easy to grow. And we looked at them under the microscope and saw that they were blinking. And so really, it was just fortuitous that we happened to find the bacteria doing this. Otherwise, we might have just been mere neuroscientists instead of uh, really studying microbiology. When you say blinking, just put a finer point on that. What we had set out to make was an indicator that would change the, the amount of light that gives off it. So when you watch a movie of a neuron you could record the voltage by just seeing how much light it was giving off. Huh. In this way, you could record the voltage inside of neurons just under a microscope by taking a movie. And this is in contrast to the traditional way to measure voltage where you might stick a wire in something. So inside of your computer mouse, if you want to record the voltage, you would stick a wire um, and then record the voltage. But of course, neurons don't like having wires stuck inside of them. And so that's why we were trying to find alternative ways through light-based measurements. Just to be clear, this is the layman coming out in me. These are the <laughs> neurons in the bacteria? No. Oh, sorry. No. no. So uh, we had, the original project that we had set out to do yeah, was that was neurological study, research. Yeah, was yes. neuroscientists. We, we just happened to find the same sort of activity in bacteria. Okay. Yes. So bacteria don't have neurons, Ryan. I can hear scientists perhaps across Colorado rolling their <laughs> eyes at that. Uh, no, no, no problem at all. Yeah. Sorry. It's, okay. uh, you know, it's <laughs> conflating a lot of different fields and I get confused a lot too. So the idea, I guess, is that if you can somehow block this ability of bacteria to feel, to sense mm -hmm. their environments and to attach you know, to my stomach lining or something, that that would be a big deal in preventing food poisoning. Yeah, that's the exact uh, pathway that we're trying to go down now is if we can find a drug that can block their ability to feel by blocking these uh, electrical impulses, we might be able to, you know, cut their hands off in essence so that they don't know that they have attached to your delicious gut lining. And so that might slow the course of infection. 
And we think this is actually particularly an interesting way to go because traditional antibiotics, the antibiotic that you might get from the pharmacy, the bacteria have a strong desire to evolve resistance to that because the, the traditional antibiotics kill bacteria. Whereas if we can just prevent them from feeling, that might slow the course of infection, but they might not really need to evolve away from that because they're still going to be alive. And so we might think it's a a novel class of preventing infection inside of people. Fascinating. But of course, there's good bacteria in my gut as well. So the the point would be to sort of turn off the the sensing ability of the bad ones without doing the same to the good ones. And, And when I take an antibiotic, for instance, it kills the good and the bad. Right. Yeah. The antibiotic is the nuclear option. It wipes out everything inside of your stomach. And of course, there, there's lots of problems, which is why they tell you to eat yogurt uh, after you take antibiotics. Right. But this, this might be a more gentle alternative. So it's, it wouldn't be something that you give to someone who is seriously sick or in sepsis. But, you know, for you or me, who is reasonably healthy, but happens to get food poisoning, this might be a way to help mitigate some of the effects of that. And of course, the thousand dollar question is, how far off is such a drug? <laughs> um, so in lab right now, we are we're going through screening for them. And so I will say that the lifetime for drug development is about 10 years. So okay. give me about 10 years and <laughs> I'll, I'll have something for you. You're asking me to be patient. Joel, thank you so much for being with us and walking us through this so beautifully. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Joel Kralsch is an assistant professor of biology at CU Boulder. He's studying electronic activity in bacteria for which I have new respect. Finally, Hanukkah begins tonight, a time when Jews celebrate light and liberation, things Oscar Slotik of Denver doesn't take for granted. To me, it's probably the most meaningful holiday because it has to do with freedom. You know, and freedom to me meant a lot in my life because I was lucky I I lived to see freedom. Oscar, or Ossie, as he likes to be called, is a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Czechoslovakia in 1935. I came from a fairly religious family, but we did it in secret, because uh, if anybody would have found out that we were celebrating uh, the Jewish holiday, they would have turned us into the authorities, and they would have picked us up and sent us to a camp. Half of his family died in the Holocaust, but he and his parents managed to stay one step ahead of the Nazis, often hiding in the wilderness. Still, they maintained their faith. We did it even in the mountains. My dear mom carried a few candles with her, and she would light the candle, make the blessing over it, and then she would put out the candle, which is, of course, against the custom, but in that case, uh, it was okay. Slotik's father was a violinist and conductor, and Ossie, too, had a musical gift. He later served in the cultural branch of the Israeli army, playing the accordion. Then he was part of the L.A. folk scene in the 1960s. In 1980, Slotik and fellow Denver songwriter Linda Carney wrote a Hanukkah song for children, material they thought was lacking at school concerts. And we didn't want to make it heavy. It's a very easy song, very light song, just kind of a celebratory And uh, then we tried it out with young people, and they all liked the song.
Nights premiered with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in a televised concert and is still performed by schools and choirs all over the country. At age 82, Oscar Slotik continues to make music, leading family sing-alongs with his accordion for Hanukkah. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.